0: Whenever you and I set ourselves to do God's will, we attract two spiritual forces to our location. Are you with me? Whenever... We set ourselves to do God's will. We attract two different spiritual forces to our position. I didn't say whenever we set ourselves to do something for God or do something related to God. I said whenever we set ourselves to do God's will, Right? I didn't say when we set ourselves to be a better Christian. I didn't say when we set ourselves to lose weight or clean the house. I didn't say when we set ourselves to be more faithful, to remember to do this, that, and the other, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm being very specific. I'm being very precise here. Whenever we set ourselves, I am here to do your will, God. And we make the choice ahead of time, I'm going to obey Jesus. Whenever we orient our heart that way, we attract two spiritual forces to our position. You guys know what I'm going to say those two forces are? We attract assistance. And we attract resistance. Whenever we say in our heart, I'm going to do your will, God. I'm going to do your will, God. I'm not here for me anymore, God. I didn't wake up today to live for pleasure like the rest of the world around me is. I didn't wake up today to live like the people around me, God. I didn't didn't wake up today to do whatever I want to do today, God. I woke up today to be a temple in which your your spirit dwells, where you have free reign, where I'm here to cooperate with you today, God. I'm here to do your will, God. This is my daily bread. Your my food, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me, John chapter 4. Man doesn't live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds, not proceeded, proceeds from God's mouth. What is his voice saying? Not just what does his book report. He said that when I set myself to do God's will, assistance comes from heaven. Guys, we don't have to pray. Sit around and pray. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. We just have to set ourselves to do His will and His Spirit will come. In fact, He won't come on a group of people who like to sing to Him but don't obey Him. If we live in such a way that on Sunday when we sing, He believes us, then our songs will probably be anointed. Are you with me? And what I was smelling this morning in the sweetness that He blessed us with, Okay, let me translate into not to like normal people speak, because that was very Christian jargony. What I experienced today was more of God than I'm often experiencing. And I believe it's because some of us have been cultivating more time and more attention in our schedule this last week, or maybe the week before too, to just give him our heart, to just be with him. When we set ourselves to do God's will, we will draw the assistance of heaven and we will draw the resistance of hell. And it's not personal. It's never about me. Well, the devil's really been this, that, the other lately. He's really been blah, 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 blah lately. He doesn't care about you. He cares about stopping the work. He cares about stopping the work of the kingdom. The kingdom is the issue. Now, the attack is personal. The attack feels personal. If someone stabs you in the chest and you're bleeding and you fall on the ground, it feels personal. Someone takes your name and slanders it through the community, it sure feels personal. But the resistance we face isn't personal. It doesn't care if you feel happy, if you feel unhappy. All it cares about is will this back them off of doing God's will or not? I'm going to read to you, Nehemiah chapter 4. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage, and he mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think that they can rebuild the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think that they can make something of these stones from a rubbish heap, burned stones at that. He's enraged. Not at who they are, not that they love God. He's not bothered by anything other than this. They're building. He's enraged by it. They're, they're participating in the construction of God's city on earth. It's, it's infuriating. The, the Hebrew words here are the strongest words you can use. So that's why they translated into things like he flew into a rage. And then he did what? He mocked. Mocked. Next verse. Tobiah the Ammonite who was standing beside him remarked, that stone wall's gonna collapse if just a Fox walked on top of it. And then I prayed, Hear us, God, for we're being mocked. Wow, words matter. Real harm is done by our words, real healing is done by our words, real power is released in our words. And Nehemiah takes very seriously. These guys are working their butts off to build this wall. And right in front of them, you stood around and made, you said, idiots, losers. Look at these losers. They think it's going to work. Fools, idiots, morons. Ha! And then Tobiah the Ammonite, he comes up again later. Because the people just love Tobiah so much. But he's no friend to the work, and therefore he shouldn't be their friend. It's kind of a big deal, guys, not to have the wrong friends. Like, we love everyone in Jesus' name, but we don't yoke ourselves to everyone. Because who you love, who you attach your heart to will influence your heart. Oh, but he has a good heart. He doesn't. He has a wicked and evil heart. He doesn't revere the Lord. He doesn't regard the Lord. He has a worldly value system. He values being attractive, rich, powerful, influential. He likes his car. He likes his woman. He likes his prestige. He likes money, 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 money. He likes being important, and you feel important when you're near him because he's winning, and you feel like a winner when you're with him. And then you justify it because it's for the kingdom. It's not. It's not, when's the last time you had a hard talk? Come to Jesus talk with him. You haven't. He's influencing you. You're not influencing him. I don't even know who I'm talking to, so. So he prays, hear us, God, we're being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Don't ignore their guilt. Don't blot out their sins. They're provoking you to anger in in front of the builders, or different translation. They're throwing insults in the face of the builders. It's so effective. When people are working hard, physically working hard, it's emotionally taxing to do physically hard work in uncomfortable conditions with very little sleep, isn't it? Mind over matter is a big deal. I don't know who these sicko scientists are that do this stuff, but they drop rats in buckets to see how long they can swim before they drown and die? I know, what? They found that if they pluck them out and let them have a rest after a certain number of hours, they can go like twice as long after that than the ones that don't get plucked out. Because something about hope, maybe they'll pull me out again and I won't drown, keeps the rats working. Sicko scientists, who are these people? But what's the point? Spirit matters. And to heap mocking insults on these workers, Nehemiah says, this is doing real damage, God. This is really hurting them. This is actually destructive. You know, we say stupid things when we're little kids, like sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's not true. Here's the real, t- here's the real truth, according to Scripture. Sticks and, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can crush my spirit. Or they can heal my spirit. And Nehemiah is like, This is real sin, guys. This is real sin. God, take it seriously. This is a big deal. Your work's at stake. I love how seriously he takes God's will. Love it. Just love it. The tenacity he has. He's feisty. We would say he's kind of mean. How can he both be godly and mean, Lord? And I'd say, well, in the New Covenant, Jesus would probably have a few talks with him. But his heart is really right for the work. He's taking God utterly seriously. You know what I think marks every true revival? Well, a lot of things. But one thing is people stop treating sin small and God as unimportant, and they start treating God as the most important thing, and they actually align their heart in such a way as to say, I'm going to take you seriously the way you deserve, and I'm going to take arranging my life under you seriously the way you deserve. It's, it's so common, guys, to not arrange our life around doing God's will, but continue to come to church on Sunday. Life and a heart chock full of idols, things we turn to and lean on and depend on to help us with our various things that we think we need. And doing it God's way is inconvenient and difficult. It's just too costly, so we'll do it this other way. And after a while, we don't even feel bad about it. And if we look around the rest of the church to see if it's okay, well, then it's fine. It's not a salvation issue. Go easy there, preacher. Preacher. But is it what the Lord said to you? Is it how he's led you? Right. Anytime we're thinking about what we can get away with rather than is it going to lead me closer to the presence of God, our hearts are already oriented away from Jesus and towards selfishness, right? Oh, I can get away with it. Dude, it's not about what you can get away with. It's about what helps you know him better. And in the midst of a revival, what happens is Every single person in the room, there's not one apathetic heart in the room. You might have a doubting heart in the room, right? You might have a straight-up unbelieving heart in the room. You might have someone who's in the midst of grief in the room. You might have all manner of emotional states or states of soul in the room, but what you won't have, at least in a real revival, is an apathetic heart. And if you do it will be exposed because the the level of real around you, you'll go, oh my word, these people love Jesus. I don't like them right now. Why don't I like them? Why do I want to run away from this place? I used to be hungry for this. What happened? I used to take joy in God. I used to realize that the closer I walk with him, the more my life was the way it was designed. Now I'm starting to think, that it's a sacrifice to be a Christian. I used to see that, that Christianity was like winning the biggest lottery ever. Like Jesus says, the kingdom is like a man who found a treasure buried in a field, and not in his sadness, counted the cost and said, Dang it, I guess if I want to go to heaven later, I can't do all the fun stuff I used to do. That's the, uh, that shows you that person doesn't have the kingdom yet. Counting the cost to the Christian isn't heavy. It isn't sad. It's a no-brainer. I could could sell my dumb trailer that has electrical wires dangling out into the shower. I could sell my trailer that when you plug in stuff, the whole electrical box just squishes in and sparks kind of come out. And sometimes, oh, well, you can't watch the TV and run the microwave at the same time. And there's a little mold The kingdom is we sell that, take the money, put the down payment on this property, and there's oil under the field. Now we're billionaires. Nobody's counting the cost in that arrangement. Nobody. Nobody's going, oh, I can't believe I have to give up my, my trailer. So guys, if we're at the place, if we're at the place where the work of building the kingdom, of participating in the kingdom feels burdensome to us, and we think We think that what God's calling us to is too costly and we're not sure we want to pay it. We have lost our mind. Satan has blinded our heart, if that's us. The cost counting of the Christian is we take our idols and we throw them away joyfully and we say, I am so glad to be rid of you because I have something so much sweeter and more satisfying and beautiful that I can give my life to. I will live my life in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I will know my God in this life. And we set ourselves to do God's will. In a revival, there's not one apathetic heart. In most churches, there's a lot of apathetic hearts. I remember back in the day when I started here, God said to me, you're frustrated because you are trying to preach to the whole church. And I said, well, what's frustrating about that? And he said, you're supposed to preach to the 15% that have ears to hear. That's what I did, and it's why I was encouraged. So he he who was talking to me was Jesus. And I looked, and sure enough, there were the crowds, there were the disciples, then there were the hungry ones. There were also the Pharisees and the critics. They always watch. But they watch with their Bible open, not so they can receive a word from God. They watch with their Bible open to see if the preacher's full of crap or not. And he probably is, because I just don't even like him, and he has that look on his face. And I'm like, why are you even here? Go away. No one invited you. You know, like that movie you all just watched. I watched the trailer, and the guy said, well, and if you're not for what's going on here, we have doors, and they work both ways. Big smile. Jesus said, 15% who have ears to hear, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. What ears? These ears? No. No, everybody heard the words Jesus said, but there were hearts that had set themselves to do God's will. And that prepared space does something. So here they are. Nehemiah owns the problem, takes the problem to the Lord, weeps over the problem, forms a plan, calls the people to the work, and they've set themselves. We're going to do God's will. And it's attracted two things it's attracted the blessing of God, the assistance of heaven, and it's attracting the counterattack, the resistance of hell. And it's going to be like that for you and me. So don't be surprised at the counterattack. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city because the people had worked with enthusiasm. Nehemiah four six. What does your translation say? Nehemiah four verse six. So we built the wall, and all of it was joined together to half its height. The people had a heart. And to, for the, so this one says enthusiasm. Linda says for the people had a heart and a mind to work. Ah. That's the difference, isn't it? Limp-handed work. Dude, come on. Shuffling your feet, dragging your... Attitude matters. That's another thing. If you want to talk about a revival, zeal, passion, intensity—you know—that's what people talk about. Like, with the great athletes of all time, it's not just their natural abilities, but like their discipline, their their intensity, their fire. Like you know, with Kobe Bryant, we called it the Mamba mentality. What's he doing? Nobody else is even. At, nobody else is even in and like practicing. They're gonna have practice in a few hours. He's by himself for three hours shooting. Then he goes and works out in the gym. Then he has a regular practice with the team. What? Then he stays after and does some more stuff. Playing through injuries, shooting threes with a broken thumb, shooting free throws with a completely torn Achilles, and then hobbling off, scheduling surgery the next morning because he's got to get into rehab as fast as possible so he can get back in the game. That's mamba mentality, and I love it so much. Attitude is everything. Skill matters very little. Gifting matters very little. You know? And with the Lord, same thing. David was the runty guy. Doug's like, yeah, but he had the marksman skills. You are correct. He had the marksman skills, sometimes the right tool for the job. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Sword, gun beats sword every time. <laughs> and he had a gun. All right, I digress. They worked with enthusiasm. But Sandbalad and Tobiah, when they heard, and when the Arabs and Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead, there it is again. It's the work. It's the work. They're offended by the work. They're provoked by the work. They're enraged by the work. It's about the kingdom, guys. The resistance isn't coming against you. It's not personal. Don't play the self-pity card. Poor me, my life's hard. It's hard for everyone. Grow up. It's hard for everyone. It's everybody. Everybody loses. Everybody falls down. Everybody loses people. Everybody loses jobs. Everybody gets rejected. Everybody gets sick and dies. Everybody knows somebody who's gone through all this. You go, oh my word, Tim, that's so harsh. No, I'm not saying we don't cry about it. We cry about it, but we refuse to get into a victim mindset about it. As though some shocking thing has happened that we just didn't expect. Guys, we're mortal in a fallen world. It's going to happen. And the Lord's made provision to heal our heart and to care for our heart in the midst of it. But don't 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 you dare take on a victim mindset. You're not alone. You're not powerless. It is hard. And in most days, I wouldn't be like this. I would cry with you and pray with you and hug you. I hope you know that. I'm not mad at you for going through hard things. I'm going through hard things. We're all going through hard things. But here's what I'm trying to say. It's not personal. It's not about me. It's not a confusing mystery. We're in a fallen world. And if we set ourselves to do God's will, Holy Spirit's going to come and assist and we're going to have to expect a counter-resistance. And the counter-resistance wants one thing alone. It doesn't care about your feelings. Whatever. It just wants to stop the work. So they're furious. They're furious that the work's going on and the gaps in the wall are being repaired. And so they made plans. They made plans, guys. Do you ever feel like that? That there's, like, actual plans designed to fight against your blessing? Do you ever feel like that? Like there's straight up intelligent evil working against you? On Wednesday night, we talked about Psalm 23 and and I really want you to go back and listen to it if you weren't there or if you were there. Again, listen to it. We talked about Psalm 23 and David says, surely the goodness and your goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. Paranoia is the irrational belief that there's some sort of malevolent evil working against me. That's paranoia. And David lives with this deep conviction that there's some kind of supernatural power working on my behalf, conspiring to bless me. That things are working out for my good and it's not me lifting my hand. That, you know, God behind the scenes is orchestrating things aggressively to pursue me. It's not paranoia. It's pronoia. Someone's out to bless me. He, this, Psalm 23 is, is for the saints, dude. It's yours. It's, it's yours. Sit in it. Sit awake at night in your bed when you can't sleep and recite it. Go over it line by line. Let it shape your heart so that you're not wasting your tears, so that you're not wasting your anxieties. So that you're letting the the thing do the work inside of you. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to try to finish. Don't say that in front of the children. They get all hopeful. (laughs) He said that, and then he preached like four more points. They're furious. They make plans. And they find out. The Jewish people that are building, they find out about these evil people's plans against them. They're not paranoid. They're just being realistic about the fight, the resistance. So this is what they do. Verse 8. They made plans to come fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Notice the word confusion. Are you with me? I'd circle that word, confusion. The demonic is all about confusion. And God isn't. All about confusion. We're just not sure what the problem is, but everyone's mad and it's probably your fault. This sounds very confused and vague. What's the truth, though? Well, the truth is, you're stupid. We hate you. You know, confusion. Verse 9, but we did two things. What? Guys, what? We prayed to our God, and we guarded the city. They took spiritual action, and they took physical action. They took prudent, God help us, God help us, they're out to get us, God protect us, it's your work, it's your work, we're not even in this for us, God, we're in this for you, God help us, save us, you see what they're doing, God help us, and get a sword post-watch. Then this is what they did. No, I can't skip ahead, I got to say, the three things, three things start to go really wrong, because again, the enemy's work does have effectiveness. Three things start to happen. Verse 10, The people of Judah began to complain. Here we go. Mocking, slandering, boom, complaining. Hearing all that, getting that negative mindset, now the negative mindset coming into my ears, it's starting to come out of my mouth. Start complaining. Oh, they're tired. There's so much rubble. We're never going to be able. Look at the word never. We're never going to be able to. When you hear yourself using always and never, you know you're in trouble because you're allowing yourself to emotionally exaggerate, which means you're a liar. Are you a liar? No, Tim, I'm not a liar. Then stop exaggerating. You're letting how it feels become what you think it actually is. And then it goes right back to what? Self-pity and victimhood. Never gonna you. You always, well, you don't ever help me around here. By the way, that's how people walk around the house. They start to complain. Number one, number two. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we're going to swoop down on them and kill them, and end the work. And I'm like, that kill them part seemed to matter to me, but that end the work thing is what matters to the enemy. Like, like you know what I'm saying? When we get selfish, we don't care about the work anymore. It's just Fine, whatever, you have it. I don't care. I just was trying to figure out how I could be a little more churchy. I was trying to stop cussing as much. I just wanted to stop drinking a little. I just wanted to save my marriage or whatever. Good things, but not God. I'm here to do God's will. Those things will come along for the ride. In fact, if those are why I'm here, I'm still worshiping idols. Right? Just nod. I, I just want what God can give me. He's so much better than what he can give me. Okay, that was number, number one, the complaining. Number two, they're like, we're going to swoop down. The, enemy, the enemies are talking. So the people of Judah are complaining. The enemies are talking. In verse 3, the Jews who ne- live near the enemy came to us again and again. Maybe your translation says 10 times. What does yours say? This is not a rhetorical question. <laughs> verse 11. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, yours says 10 times over. See, isn't that interesting how different the Hebrew gets translated? That's why I like Greek better. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we're going to swoop down. Then the Jews that lived near the enemy came and told us again. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I meant to say verse 12. It came and told us again and again. That's, that's where it says 10 times. They will come from all directions and attack us. So that's doom and gloom. Guys, it's going to be horrible. Disaster is going to happen. So you got complaining. Bless you guys. You got complaining. You got predicting of wrong, and you got the enemy all chirping in your ear. All of it. That's a hard day. So here was their response. I'm really trying to finish up, guys. So I looked at the situation I keep skipping ahead. Don't do it. Just read the book to the people, Tim. Then the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they're going to come from all directions and attack us. So I, he didn't just ignore it. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. Okay, where it's most vulnerable, we're going to place armed guards. And then I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. And then I looked over the situation, and he preaches his, like, Braveheart speech or his Aragon speech. You know what I'm talking about? Like his, his like, speech, that speech. Here it is. I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Oh, come on, guys. That is so freaking good. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. And then everyone exploded into flames. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's a good day. What a good speech. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and remember who you're fighting for in addition to the Lord. So when our enemies heard, this thwarts the the enemy's plans. We saw you coming. We stood guard. We rallied our spirits. And now the plan is thwarted. They can't take us by surprise because we're alert and we're on on guard. Then they they changed how they work from then on. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, then we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears and shields and coats of mail. The leaders themselves were behind the people who were building the wall, and the laborers carried on the work with one hand supporting the load and one hand holding a weapon. Are you with me? And all the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter was with me all the time in order to sound the alarm. And I explained, the work is spread out, so we're widely separated from each other. So when you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it is sounding. I wrote the word shofar in the margin. (laughs) Rush to wherever it is sounding, and then God will fight for us. Well, who's going to be the ones actually holding the swords? We are. Who's going to be the ones actually swinging the swords and holding the shields and spears? We are. Who's going to be the one bleeding? Maybe we are. But who's the one who's going to give victory? Who's the one who's going to make our fight effective? It's the Lord. So we worked early and we worked late from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. And I also told the people living outside the walls, stay in here until this work's done. That way, you guys can help serve with guard duty and the work at night and day. And during this, verse 23, none of us, not I, my relatives, my servants, or the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. Why? We are ready. We're ready for the fight. We never took off our clothes. We never took off our weapons at any time, even when we went for water. Guys, this is so hardcore. When you set yourself to do God's will, you will attract two forces. Heaven will come to assist you, and hell will come to resist you. And so their, counter, their response to the resistance is not to get intimidated, at least not Nehemiah's response, But it's to rally the spirit of the workers to form a strategy where they're balancing the spirit with the physical, and both are working together. John Wesley used to have a phrase no one works unless someone prays. This is the intercessory part of the war of doing God's will. I can feel when you pray for me. Sometimes you all find out that Carrie and I, we sometimes argue. I don't mean to disappoint you, but I'm not quite as perfect as Jesus. He's chuckling at that funny joke that I just made. You know, and and just maybe she's not perfect either. We're not sure. We're not sure. (laughs) Close. But sometimes we I process with some of you what's going on in our little disagreements as we're trying to figure out how to take good care of each other's hearts and do the thing called marriage and family and ministry and all the stuff. And I hear Carl say, I've been praying for you guys. And seasons when I hear those reports, it's crazy how the peace and the re- we find resolution. There's something powerful about, about this principle that as we set ourselves to do God's will, we attract heaven. We also attract resistance. And the, two, the two-pronged attack is... I'm going, to pr- I'm going to do the work with the one hand, but the other hand has a sword. I'm doing the practical life thing with my, with my time and my schedule, but, but my other part of me is tuned into the spiritual weaponry. I've got my spirit turned on while I'm doing practical life work. And the working in shifts to make sure that the people of God are covered in prayer. Are, are you understanding what I'm saying? And I love John Wesley. Again, he used to say, no one works unless someone prays. They wouldn't just schedule volunteers for certain areas. They would schedule intercessors for those other volunteers. Fantastic. I've often wondered what would happen if we stationed a prayer room that during service, five or six people didn't even come into this room. They were just in the back room praying for what was happening in the big room. I'm not even suggesting that's a divine plan. It's just him going... I wonder what the applications for this are, you guys. Can you think of applications for this? Can you be asking the Lord, Lord, what does this mean? Because I know as you're reading Nehemiah 4, there's oil on that. I just know, I just know, as y'all are reading Nehemiah 4, okay, let me translate out of Christianese again. You know how your mind says, ooh, that applies. I'm not sure how, but that applies to me. This part about the sword in the one hand and the trowel in the other, don't you read that and go, ooh, that's for me. Just not fully sure what it is though. Please nod your heads. Just make me feel. Thank you. There, now I feel better. All right, I'm going to get off this microphone. Prayer team can come on up. Passages like Nehemiah 4 must have informed New Testament authors talking about being alert at all times. Passages like Nehemiah 4 had to, because they read these passages. We didn't take off our sword. We didn't take off our clothes. We knew the enemy had strategies against us. And instead of going, this isn't worth it, we doubled down. We worked one-handed so that we could give the spiritual power and, and the spiritual prayer. See, now that's the application point. Sword in the one hand, trial in the other. What do you guys got? start over here and head that way. Uh, Fear. I just want to say fear is a liar. And um, the Lord wants to heal and I know he wants to heal and he wants to give freedom and he just wants to rain down in your life. So anybody, anybody's heart that is like hungry, uh, needs healing with uh, like freedom. Just open your hearts up and just let them rain, in your life come up here and get prayer for that. Thank you. Else? Yep. Um, if Adriana's in the building, I want to pray for her and a right meniscus. I don't even know what that is. Knee. Knee. What's knee? I understand me. Anyone else? No? Okay. Go ahead and stand. Go ahead and stand. Okay, she thought I was saying stand. (laughs) Just sit a minute, okay? I mean, not sit. I mean, just stay still a minute. Lord, I have prepared a place for you. Can you pray that with him? Lord, I've prepared a place for you. Behold, it's written of me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me. God, I belong to you. God, I belong to you. My life is yours. Today is yours. This afternoon is yours. Dwell in this temple. Speak to my heart. You know all my needs. You know all my desires. You carry all my griefs. And you carry all my hopes. I belong to you. I belong to you. Amen. If you'd like to receive prayer up here, come forward. If you'd like to stay and just linger a minute and talk to God without anyone praying for you, that is always good.